Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, and uh, Murray, uh, thank you. And if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 14? John chapter 14. Um, kind of moving ahead sequence-wise, uh, next week is a celebration of Jesus coming in to Jerusalem to begin the Holy Week. And so I'm jumping ahead to the Upper Room Discourse. And next week I'll come back to that. It's good to be here, uh, good to be here with you today. It's good to be anywhere today. I mean, coming through Bragg's, we, Susan and I, uh, dedicated our life, rededicated our lives to the Lord if he could get us through the rain. That animals were collecting in pairs on the side of the road, and uh, it looked kind of tough there, and lightning was, and we, it was a tornado warning. So we're glad to be here, and I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad that you're you're here today. Uh, as we look at John 14, it's one of the famous passages in Scripture. Um, my uh, son and and daughter-in-law and two girls went to New York during the uh, spring holidays, and when they went there, they went to a a Broadway show called Hamilton. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Hamilton, ever seen it. It's been on television. But um, in Hamilton, there's a song that says, The Room Where It Happened. And the room where it happened is for us, it, well, it was there where they made a compromise and, and made the capital in Washington, D.C., rather than up north. But here's the room where it happened. Here's the room, the last time that Jesus was with his disciples on earth. And it was a tough time. There were a lot of uh, tension in that room. And, but out of some of the worst situations come our best promises. Words mean a lot, and they mean so much to us. And every word where we share words is a kind of a construction zone. That is, we can build up people or we can tear them down. I remember at the stadium uh, when we played a team from Valley High Fairfax. And it was a hard game uh, when I was in high school. And we went up and down the field and they ended up beating us by a touchdown and I was in the room, uh, dressing room, getting dressed, and I was hurting, and it seemed like I'd just, just really just been worked over. I played running back and linebacker. And um, all of a sudden in that room, Coach Speed came over and put his arms around me, and he said, you played a good game. And all of a sudden that kind of helped relieve some of the kind of tension that was there. And Jesus is in the upper room trying to get the disciples ready for what's going to come their way. And he, he tells them about what they can look for. He tells them about the future and all that's there. And he tries to relieve the tension in the room because there was a lot of tension in that room. And he does it with words and promises that are there for us as we hold them even today. They come down from that time in Jerusalem in that upper room and they come down to us as we just need something to hold on to in the world in which we live in. Now, um, 
John writes about the upper room. He's the only one that writes about the upper room. He was probably the youngest of the disciples. And for John, he looked for some kind of something that was missing in his life. And we read about John. We read the first chapter in John where he came to find Jesus. He had joined the uh, John the Baptist movement. And as he joined the John the Baptist movement, John pointed to Jesus one day and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John and Andrew left John the Baptist movement and followed Jesus. And when they followed Jesus, Jesus turned around and said, What are you looking for? And John said, We just need something to fill our life. We need something we can hold on to. And so Jesus said these words, which are kind of the theme that runs throughout the Gospel of John. Come and see. Come and see. And John remembers that time in that day. It was 12 o'clock. And John writes about the love of Christ more than anybody else writes about the love of Christ. Because he found something that he was looking for and he writes about that love, and he gives us that verse that all of us know from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him, believeth in him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. And that's the only place that you can find it, is to have eternal life. There's a God who comes to us and almost chases us to show us the love that he has for us. I read about a veterinarian who was not only a veterinarian, but he was a taxidermist. And he said his slogan was this, either way you get your dog back. Amen. (laughs) I don't think I'd want to take my dog to a veterinarian that says either way you get your dog back. But we have a God who cares so much about us deeply. When Susie and I were in the cove in um, Asheville, North Carolina, Billy Graham's favorite verse is there everywhere it's seen, and it's John 3.16. For he found God's love as a dairy farmer, a young man, and he went all over the world sharing about God's love. John wrote about that more than anybody else. And he not only wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation. And all of them are talking about the love of God. If you ever grasp something about the love of God, Paul talks about it in Ephesians. It goes deep inside of you and reaches into the furthest points of our lives. And he tells us he loves us and he cares for us. And he has a great plan for our lives. In fact, I think in uh, seminary where I was, in the men's bathroom, they had in the stalls 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Amen. So, And each one of them, the leading theme is about God's love for us because God, uh, John wants to get that message out. What he found he wants to share with everybody else. Now, um, Jesus is trying to get the 
disciples to understand what's about to happen. And they're struggling with that. Um, Peter drew him aside when he first said he was going to Jerusalem. And he said, no, that's not for us, Lord. And there was this confrontation as he got in Jesus's face and, and Satan got into their conversation. And sometimes he does that. But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he goes to the city and he shares God's love. But he knows where he's going. He's going to the cross. And it's hard to understand that. That wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. They wanted somebody who would get rid of those hated Romans. But he was doing what needed to be done. And he was doing because of not so much what they wanted, but what we needed. We needed a Savior who would die for us. And he had a hard time getting that point over. Um, there was this uh, couple, and Susan and I teach a young, young professional class. And there was a couple who, she had been working all day, and he had been you know, at work, and she was off work that day, and she'd worked all in the house and got all this stuff done, cleaned the windows, and had worked so hard all that day. And uh, when he came home from work, she was just thinking, all I want is just to go out and eat a hamburger. And so when he came in, she said, I sure would like a hamburger. And he said, I would too. Fix me two of them. <laughs> it just... How many husbands have just missed that, you know, and just failed to see... That kind. Our wives have been, the ninja mind trick is this. A ninja mind trick is come from Star Wars. And what the ninja mind trick does is he takes his idea, puts them in your head, and you think it's your idea, but it's really his idea. Now, wives have been doing that for years. They have been putting these ideas into our heads. And we end up doing what they wanted to do in the first place. But we think it's our idea. Jesus is trying to do more than just a mindset. It's not a mind trick. He's trying to get them ready for what they are about to face. And they're trying to understand that. But they're struggling with it. So in the upper room, he gets them up there in the upper room. Susan and I have been to that place in the upper room. We've been on the first floor. We haven't been on the second floor. And as you walk through the streets of Jerusalem, there's this place that has been the place where they had not only the upper room discourse there, but they had the Lord's Supper and the Passion Week and the Passover. It was there that the disciples gathered after, after Jesus' crucifixion. And they were so afraid of what would happen that they locked the doors. But Jesus came through the door. It was there that they were gathered after Jesus had ascended. And after he had ascended, Jesus told them not to go anywhere. And for 10 days they had a prayer meeting. And all of a sudden, something happened that's beyond, really beyond anything they had ever planned for. The Holy Spirit happened in a powerful way in that upper room. 
That upper room had a special place in the early church in Jerusalem. Now, in honor of God's word, would you stand as I read for us John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, room enough to spare. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place where there's topos. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, that's personal. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and he's coming again, and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So Thomas questioned him. Nobody else would ask a question. But Thomas questioned him. Jesus said, and where I go. And there's this theme of going and coming throughout this kind of upper room discord. And where I go, you know the way. And Thomas said unto him, and he was the only one that could really would stand there. All the, the disciples were asking the same question. Where are you going? And here to me, if you had only one verse to give somebody, this would be the verse that I would share with them. Jesus said unto him, I am. And he uses a definite article. I am the way. Not a way, not one among many, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the only place to find eternal life. No one comes unto the Father, and without Jesus, God is some far off power, but by me. And that is the message of this church. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. And you may be seated. And as you're seated, would you look back at some things that happened in that room? If you look back at chapter 13, um, that begins the upper room discord. Goes through chapter 17. But uh, Jesus knew who he was and he knew where he was going. He had all this power and he could pretty well do whatever he wanted to do. So he was in the room and they were preparing for supper. And uh, by the way, uh, supper is a, a Dallas County word. Amen. When you eat at night, you eat supper. Um, but so anyway... Um, they were preparing for supper and preparing for the Passover. But the foot washer didn't show up. And when you came to a meal like that, it was kind of the thing to do to wash people's feet. But all the disciples were arguing about who was going to be first. And when you get into that mode of trying to be first, you don't wash people's feet. 
But while they're arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom of God, and Jesus took his outer garment off, got down, and took a basin, and he washed the disciples' feet. Each one of them. Even Judas was included in that group. And he knew that Judas was going to leave him. He washed Peter's feet and, and Peter took it all saying, no, just wash all of me. You're, you're not going to be that kind of Lord that washes feet. He could have done anything he wanted to do. He could have had them all bow down to him. But this is what he chose to do because he likes being a servant. And after he washed their feet, he said this, you have seen me do this unto you. Now you do this unto others. Whatever needs to be done, you do this unto others. It's a principle. As you show the world, the world will know that you love each other and have a church that loves each other as you wash each other's feet. Whatever needs to be done, that's what needs to be done. Whatever it takes. Um, yesterday, Susan and I took an um, older lady. I say older lady. That's a term that's kind of going out of style these days. Uh, one who had too many candles on a birthday cake. Do you know what I'm talking about? That uh, We took her car to be washed. Now, wasn't that just kind of convenient time? But she had asked us to do that. Would you do this? And so we didn't wash her feet, but we took her car to be washed because she couldn't wash it. And it needed to be done. There's a world that watches Christians and see how we wash each other's feet. Things that need to be done that nobody else is doing and nobody wants to do. But somehow we get it into our agenda that here's what I do. Because he has done this for me, I also will do this for you. Why do you do that? I remember a man that was cooking breakfast at a church in Birmingham. And they asked him, they said, I didn't know that you like to cook. And he says, I don't like to cook said, why are you cooking? And he said, because Jesus told me to cook. Amen. And why are you doing this? Why are you going out of your way to be a part of something that's happening in the church or happening in the community that nobody else does? Because the Lord has done that for me. I want to do that for you. Things got kind of harsh. And Jesus announced to them, in that upper room that one of you is going to betray me. All of a sudden there was this coldness. And you know they all didn't turn around and say I bet it's Judas. This is what they say. Is it me? Is it me? In every dozen you're going to have a Judas. Jesus had Judas sitting next to him. Jesus had washed his feet that night. Um, Jesus dipped the bread in the sop and gave it to Judas. 
All of that was his effort to reach out to Judas. But Judas didn't receive it. He turned away from it and went out and it was night. That's the word there, it's night. It was darkness that came in his heart. And in a process, Satan had moved closer and closer to Judas' heart. It's a process. Maybe he was angry. Maybe it was greed. They had elected him as treasurer. They showed some kind of, uh, um, they thought world of him. He was the only disciple from, not from Galilee. Maybe it was greed. Maybe it was anger. Whatever, he kept that as a distance and he kept moving away from Jesus until finally he got to the place where he couldn't turn it around. And there is a place of no return. Uh, I've been to Niagara Falls and it's just beautiful seeing that falls. But as the Niagara River comes into that falls, behind that is a place that is listed as a place of no return. That is, once you get to that point in the falls, in the river, you're going over the fall. And there's no turning it around. And I've been to people that shared the gospel with them and, and, and just said, you know, can't you hear the love of Christ in here? And like Judas, they kind of turned a deaf ear. Judas went out and it was night. And then he turned to Peter. And Peter says, though all the others will leave you, I will never, never, ever leave you. Good intentions. The flesh can only carry us so far. And it's, a, it's got to have the power of God to take us through those conviction moments. And for Judas, I mean for Peter... He said, I will be there for you. You can count on me. And then Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter just, the tension in the room grew stronger. So in verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus said this, calm down. Calm down. Let not your heart be troubled. Sometimes he has to speak to our hearts in the middle of the night. Calm down. Let not your heart be troubled. That's a present imperative, present command. He tells us that. It troubled hearts. We're living in a world of troubled hearts. And those things kind of get us up at the middle of the night or get us up in the middle of a day and and we wonder about what's going to happen and we have these kind of troubled hearts over the situation. If you believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me. Trust me with this moment. In my Father's house is room enough to spare. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. 
And one of these days, I'll come back and receive you into myself. And I've been in so many rooms where the Lord came and received that person. There's a, a study of eschatology that talks about one of these days the Lord's coming back. And there are books written on all that. But there's also a personal eschatology. That is when he comes, you and I take our last breath on this earth. There's a promise of the Lord being to be uh, absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. There's a promise of his presence to be there. And I've been there when so many people took their last breath. And there was something about that moment that you cannot explain. And they went on to be with the Lord. The body stayed here because it was worn out. But the spirit went on and soul went on to be with the Lord. And that's a promise that we have for those who have accepted Christ as their Savior and made the Lord that kind of place that only he can feel and have felt his love in their life and have committed their life to Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. This week, um, I have had uh, two funerals. And on Friday, the uh, Spencers passed away, and they, they lived at... Uh, uh, Pine, Pine Heart and Old Orville Road. And you know that tornado when it came through, it came through and just wiped away their house. They were both in the hallway and the only thing left was a roof over that hallway. And it came and took, um, their house was completely torn apart. They died, uh, they lived for, um, oh I don't know, they one was 69, I think she was 69, and he was like 93. And um, they had been born in Greensboro and had been married in Greensboro, and they moved to Uniontown. And they moved from Uniontown to Selma. Now, I don't blame them. I would have moved from Uniontown to Selma also. Uh, and they even lived out in Sardis. I think they had some land out there, but... That's the only time I've ever had a two-casket funeral. Because they died within a few days of each other. And as I stood before, he was buried in Veterans Cemetery. And the reason he was buried there is because he had served in the Army during those years. And as I looked at a family, they had the gun salute and had the flag that gave to his daughter Debbie and as I looked into the family and gave them something to hold on to as they said goodbye to their family I said let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house of many mansions and here's what's left of this body. But these two have gone on to be with the Lord. Yesterday at a funeral uh, by uh, Phil, a guy named Phil. Phil played football for the University of Alabama. And uh, Phil has been through three years and three months of being totally disabled. 
His wife, uh, Charlotte, had to take complete care of him. And Phil wasn't that way. He didn't like for anybody to take care of him. He had played linebacker for Coach Bryant, and that was the idea of his life was to play for the University of Alabama. And see, he was in a lot of ways a man's man, but then the strokes started coming in his life. And in the strokes that came into his life, he was totally disabled. And Charlotte had to take over as his wife, and she bathed him and watched over him and took care of him and did everything for him. And he couldn't do any of those things for himself. And as men, that, as men we want to be in control of ourselves. And that the greatest fear of men is that I will lose control of my life. And Phil had lost that kind of control in his life. So in the middle of that room and there came a day when he finally took his last breath and she had her hand on his stomach. That's how she tell, told whether he was breathing or not. For the last uh, three years after they had retired in three months, they had gone wherever they wanted to go. To go into her house was like going into Southern Living. You could uh, check into her beds and you could check in her closets and they were all clean she was that kind of person but all of a sudden her life was totally interrupted they paid a price emotionally they paid a price physically because it took a toll on their life and often it paid a price spiritually because when you're going through that for three years and three months, you pray to God for things to get better and they don't get better and they get worse. And you wonder where God is in the middle of this moment. But when I went to see Phil and when I went to see Charlotte, I saw two people who were holding on to each other and holding on to the Lord. And yesterday, as we said finally goodbyes this side of heaven, I read to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Those words were written a long time ago, but they give us hope when you and I have to take our last breath in this life. I read about a man at Cracker Barrel, and he was... Uh, rocking on one of those rockers, rockers, and the rocker was going squeak, squeak, squeak. And so he went into uh, Cracker Barrel and complained about the fact that that rocker was squeaking. So uh, one of the workers there came and sprayed it down with WD-40, which is an Auburn solution to everything. Amen. If you're an Auburn graduate, duct tape also helps. <laughs> but uh, so he went and got back into his rocking chair and it still went squeak, squeak, squeak because the squeak was not in the chair it was in the man now all of us have squeaks, amen they are painful reminders that life is short. 
They're painful reminders that the only place where there is no plain, uh, pain is in heaven. Until that time, we deal with pain. And you can put WD-40 on it if you want to, but it's still not going to help. Because life is short and it comes to an end. And until Jesus comes back, you and I will have to deal with pain to remind us that this is not the end of the story. That the story is not going to be over in this life. That there's another place that God has prepared for us. And one of these days, when we take that last breath, he will come and receive us unto himself. When you have Christ as your Savior. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes was a uh, great lawyer. He served on the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, And as he served on the Supreme Court, uh, he took a train back to where he lived and where he uh, came from or where he was on the Supreme Court. And one day he was in one of those trains. And one of the things that uh, I enjoy enjoy as a little boy is listening to the trains early in the morning. We don't have any trains in Fairhope, so we're without trains in Fairhope. But he was on the train. How many of you have ever had a train ride? Would you raise your hand? Yeah. Again, that's old people if you had a train ride. My granddaddy was an engineer, and he used to get us tickets to ride from Selma to Gastonburg. But Oliver Wendell Holmes was on this train, and as he was on the train, uh, he, kept, he couldn't find his ticket. And so the conductor said, that's all right, I know who you are. You're on the Supreme Court. And he said, I need to find my ticket. Where do you need to find your ticket? And he said, I need to know where I'm going. Here's the question. When you take that last breath, do you know where you're going? When your uh, relatives take that last breath, Do you know where they're going? Where you're going is a very important question. Jesus gives us that hope. There's nowhere to find eternal life but in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, would you bow your heads with me this morning? Sometimes there are people who walk away from the faith and it hurt Jesus and sometimes it hurts us. But I'm glad that the disciple didn't say, I'm going to quit. If Judas walked away, I'm just going to quit. Maybe you know people who have walked away like Judas. But maybe you know somebody who has stayed the course even when Judas left. They stayed the course because there was nowhere else to receive eternal life. So today the question is, do you know where you're going? Have you made that decision to follow Christ as your Savior? 
Dear Father, I pray that as we look inside of our hearts today, we can find that assurance that we know Christ is our Savior. Be close to us this morning. Father, we pray for those who do not know Christ as their Savior. We pray that somehow they will find you as their Lord and Savior. And they will experience that love of Christ that they need to experience in this life as well as the life to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now would you stand as we sing, I Surrender All. Would you make that your kind of invitation today as Jeff comes to lead us?